This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Investment Migration Report. Today we have as our special guest, Michael Belkin, who's of counsel with the law firm Ackerman and also the managing principal at Arit Strategic Development. Welcome, Michael, and thank you for being here with us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to this discussion. Well, Michael, I know uh, we've been working together for the past six or seven years, uh, but I know you've been involved in economic development as a, both as an attorney and both on the government side as well as, as a developer. Uh, do you mind just giving uh, us a quick background about uh, you know, your, your background in economic development and uh, you know, your, your, how, how you came about to getting involved in the EB-5 program? Wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, I really started off in the public sector. Initially on the Roosevelt Island development project in New York City, I became deputy counsel to that project when uh, we were first developing it. Uh, and then after the extended a law firm, I went into the city government uh, and ultimately became head of economic development for the city and the Beam administration, which was a very interesting time because we were going through a bankruptcy then. Effectively, the city had shut down. So I had the opportunity both to work with the team that was trying to restore fiscal stability to the city, as well as building up the economic development programs that would eventually kickstart the economy again. So we're working on it from both ends, both from the standpoint of cleaning up the bond market and letting the city get back into the bond market, as well as stimulating developers and investors to start investing capital back in. And it turned out that the first project that we uh, were using to uh, stimulate that, uh, that development was the Commodore Hotel, which was Trump's first project. And uh, the mayor appointed me to be the city's lead negotiator on it. Uh, took about a year to get through. And basically, we used that pr- project to create a program called the uh, Mayor's Investment Program. Uh, that became available to all developers and it stimulated a few billion dollars worth of construction right after that. So the combination of putting the city back in good fiscal shape as well as the uh, stimulus of those various programs which were initially tax oriented but uh, developed a number of other techniques as well uh, really created I think the basis of a good economy. Uh, after doing that and finishing up that, that uh, program, I started a law firm called Statmare Balkan. And we, uh, Dave uh, Statmare, by the way, had been the head of economic development for the New York State Urban Development Corporation. And we met on the Commodore Hotel project. He was my counterpart on it because we needed state powers to accomplish uh, the incentive that we wanted to provide. And for many years, Statmare Balkan focused on economic development. Uh, we had a national practice. We built up a, a boutique practice and were sort of to the, the go-to firm in New York for that, but it was primarily a New York-based program and in many ways an outer borough program. Uh, those incentives have changed radically as New York became a more powerful city. So as, as Mayor Bloomberg said when he first came in, who had been a client of mine, by the way, before that, 
he basically said, look, we don't have to pay people to come into the city. They should be paying a premium to be here. And consequently, most of the economic development programs, at least the ones that were more meaningful in terms of delivering assistance, uh, were put by the wayside. And most economic development was then focused on uh, both uh, outer borough development as well as major projects as opposed to corporate retention. Uh, we folded Ackerman into, um, uh, into, I'm sorry, we folded Statmarabalkin into Ackerman about uh, 15 years ago, and it was a pretty good move for everybody. All my partners uh, became partners at uh, Ackerman, and I, I came in as of counsel so I would be able to do projects because the very nature of an economic development project or an economic development practice leads you into the business of real estate. So I've sort of led a dual career since then, started a company called Arate Strategic Development. But up until then, my most important project was Metrotech, which turned out to be a 9 million square foot back office and tech operation done with Far City Ratner. Uh, we, uh, we basically did that from uh, working with Polytechnic University, which was going to leave Brooklyn to go to Farmingdale. I convinced them to say, you want to stay in Brooklyn and we'll create, we'll use your university to create a dynamic uh, project around it that will utilize the, the, the skill sets of a lot of your academics and students. And that worked out very, very, uh, uh, a very successful project. As I said, they developed 9 million square feet. And since then, I focused on those kind of projects. That project was the, the first example where a private developer privatized the urban renewal process. Until that point, the way you did urban renewal was you used federal dollars, the city condemned land, and then they, uh, they did a master plan and they tried to get developers to come in. And the problem with that, it wasn't really market oriented, it was planner oriented. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, millions of dollars were spent on land acquisition and relocation. So this was the first time where a private developer took the initiative but used the, pro the urban renewal process, but uh, we put up all of the front end capital to do the plans and we got the urban renewal process done in record time, but basically focusing on a combination of doing economic development service providing where I act as a lawyer or consultant for individual projects. And in that process, I've used EB5 in a number of different projects, uh, both as a consultant on some of my own projects and really uh, believe that there's a role for EB-5, particularly in today's environment where you have opportunity zones. And I think there's a tremendous interaction between, on the one hand, the federal opportunity zones, as well as similar type zones that states and localities designate, as well as combining uh, the EB-5 investment capital along with various forms of subordinated uh, public capital. And I guess we can jump into that. I'm sure you'll have a few questions specifically as to how those pieces fit together. But that's sort of perhaps a longer overview than you might have asked for. Sure, no, that's great. Thank you, Michael. And uh, I think um, for, for our audience, maybe uh, just mention what year that um, uh, Commodore Hotel project uh, was done. That was 1975, 76. Uh, the project went into construction in late 1976 and 77, uh, but that was, as you can recognize from those dates, that was the middle of the city's bankruptcy. 
Right, and, and uh, President, former President Trump, I guess that was his first project. How old was he at the time? And he was, doing this he, was uh, he was a young man then. <laughs> he was younger than me. Uh, it, the, I guess he was about 22, 23, maybe a little, maybe a few years older. Interesting. And I think, Michael, since you've been you know, involved in economic development for such a long time, um, what are some of the other you know, good economic development programs other than EB-5 and you know, maybe compare and contrast EB-5 to some of the great programs that, um, that help you know, generate economic activity, foreign investment, and really help revitalize um, you know, forgotten cities? Well, let's start with the federal level. Uh, there was really only one federal program that I've liked that gave the flexibility to do economic development. I think when you're talking about using incentives, you need tools that are flexible uh, and tools that allow for some discretion, both within government and the private entrepreneurs to interact so they can really tailor, make the incentive to generating the investment. <clears throat> that project was, uh, or that program was UDAG, Urban Development Action Grant. Now, most of you are probably too young to remember that program. Uh, it was. Uh, we used it back in the late 70s and early 80s when it was at its heyday. And uh, I, I probably put together maybe about three, four hundred million dollars of UDAG grants at that time for various clients. And what was good about it is that you, the money, it was actual capital that came in, usually came in as a grant so that it was subordinated. Uh, and it, it enabled a lot of projects to go forward, particularly in the early days, they were focusing on downtown hotels. Uh, places like Cincinnati, Cleveland were all generating a hotel market that had never existed in many of those cities. Uh, and you, so UDAG eventually phased out. Uh, at one time, uh, I brought into my law firm the former director of UDAG after he had retired from government, uh, but the program itself kind of tapered off. And it's only EB-5 that gives me any, uh, EB-5 and the Opportunity Zone programs are the ones that seem to me the most productive uh, federal interactions or the, you know, the federal stimulus. Usually the feds have very uh, rigorous and straightforward programs and a lot out of HUD that to accomplish specific goals. But I think both UDAG, EB-5 and OZ really enable you to do a very broad range of development and a broad range of businesses and communities. And in all cases, uh, uh, particularly for OZ and UDAG, you can invest the money in businesses as opposed to straight real estate deals. So far, I think that EB-5, and you know better than I, but I think EB-5 has been used only or if not primarily for real estate. Uh, but there, one should perhaps start to consider whether it, it makes sense from both the investor standpoint and the sponsor standpoint to use EB-5 as capital in operating businesses. Great. And, um, and Michael, I know, um, um, I think a lot of us in the EB-5 business uh, were under the impression that President Trump would, would, would come in and fix the EB-5 program given his real estate background, but unfortunately that didn't happen. But one, one thing that was I think was significant in the previous administration was the fact that they did pass the Opportunity Zone program. And I think a lot of a lot of people have known that this program was something that they were trying to pass all the way back to the Reagan administration, but finally they were able to get it done under the last administration. Could you maybe weigh in on that a bit? Well, I'm more familiar with the OZ program. Uh, EB-5 sort of went quiescent uh, during the last administration. Uh, I think it was probably a number of things. I think it was less a government issue 
than it was the fact that we had so much retrogression from China and, be, and, and then political issues with China that kind of shut that market down. So I think, the whole, from my view standpoint, uh, the problem really came not so much from the government, but from the, uh, you know, from the change in dynamics from China, for the most part. Uh, I think that the big issue from the Trump administration was the OZ program. And we've worked very closely with the OZ team, particularly with Jerron Smith, who was running the program from the White House. Uh, we've done a number of, our firm has sponsored a number of conferences to sort of connect the federal team with local communities. Uh, as you can imagine, the Republican administration trying to go in to inner city Detroit wasn't always welcome there. So uh, Jerron reached out to uh, our team, uh, particularly one of my partners, Don Cogsville, uh, to start to do outreach to those kind of cities. And we worked in about 10 or 11 cities, including Miami, Philadelphia, of course, Detroit, Atlanta, Houston, places like that, where our main job was to create connectivity among the, the main stakeholders there. One of the key issues that we were always pushing, aside from the uh, issue of connectivity and, and bringing together good projects and trying to stimulate investment from uh, private uh, investors who had capital gains was how do you make the projects feasible? And what we found is that um, the tax benefits by themselves, in my view, were not enough to really stimulate development in many of these areas. And as a result, what you had is that most of the OZ projects are really not core OZ projects. They're really on the periphery. A lot of market rate housing has been done. A lot of hotels have been done. Uh, less so after the pandemic hit, but the main stimulus for OZ was really private market capital for projects that probably would have been uh, occurred anyway, uh, and they really didn't have that much impact on the community. So towards the end of the administration, and particularly with Jerron Smith's push, there became a new emphasis on trying to get into core projects that really would be transformational for communities. But in order to do that, the dynamics and the investment criteria are radically different than just for market rate housing. So essentially it means that you have to put in a lot of supplemental capital, some of which would come from local government. Uh, the problem is that while many local governments like Philadelphia and, and any of the cities have their own programs, uh, they're, they're all under fiscal strain. So there's a lot of difficulty in raising the levels of capital that we need and in the flexibility as we'll see when we're talking about the capital stack of putting them together in the right way. Uh, EB-5 would be terrific for those kind of projects because EB-5 generally from a developer standpoint and an investor standpoint provides subordinated capital that enables them to reduce their equity requirements and put the capital stack together and also induce uh, lenders to come in. Uh, there was very, the problem is, is that just at the time where there was a recognition from the federal government and many states and localities that you needed this kind of supplemental capital to make OZ work and where there became a political dynamic to, uh, to favor those kind of projects, the EB-5 program was tapering off. So that was less available on a, on a, a uh, substantial basis than it had been before. So what you really had was the heyday of EB-5, where a lot of capital was coming in, but also because of the rules that uh, 
enabled you to do TEAs in areas that really weren't depressed. Um, most of that capital went into projects like Hudson Yards or Silverstein's project in Lower Manhattan. And it's only as the EB-5 project started to develop and, and again focused like the OZ program on more impacted areas that the EB-5, uh, uh, the availability of capital started to taper off. So I think the goal, as I would see it from my perspective as a developer and service provider, is the continuation of the OZ program with a greater emphasis on it, both from the federal side who can provide additional incentives, uh, you know, to supplement the tax benefits, at the same time really structuring the EB-5 program and putting it together in a way that it's going to be uh, a great capital raising mechanism, particularly and focus, particularly to be focused on supporting OZ projects. That seems to me the dynamic that can both produce public policy as well as good uh, investments. This is a very interesting topic, and of course, in light of your vast experience, I mean, we're glad to have you here so we could ask all the questions that I'm sure a lot of the investors want to know as well. This is something, Capital Stack is something I really get into with the investors because they want to understand what they're investing in. So you had mentioned that um, including EB-5 in the capital stack can induce institutional lenders to lend. I was wondering how institutional lenders react to the use of EB-5 in a capital stack um, and, you know, how you could use EB-5 to maximize benefits to developers and acceptability to lenders as well. Well, it's a great question, and it's, I'm going to give you a little bit of a complicated answer because there's different views on this. Uh, the, the, the basic issue <clears throat> is that on the one hand, lenders like subordinated capital uh, because it enables them to essentially give a lower loan to value uh, on a project. So developers are always under tremendous pressure to limit their own equity. Equity is always hard to raise in the current environment. Most equity is provided by third-party sources rather than by the developers themselves. So what the developers need to do is limit that equity. It's a cost to them. Uh, and at the same time, the banks want to have a lot of subordinated capital in because they, they don't want to be the primary uh, at risk uh, holders. So in, uh, there's always been a dynamic as to how much loan to value there would be. At certain times, banks would loan as much as 80 or 90 percent of the capital and then uh, particularly after the 2008 recession those numbers crept back considerably so on the one hand banks welcome you know having a lot of money behind them on the other hand there's been some concern about having EB-5 investors having a role in the project uh, and which is why the, a lot of the banks will no longer allow EB-5 to take a real estate position so a real estate position means that uh, ideally, investors would like to get at least a, a mezzanine loan position where they have some legal rights if the project goes, goes under. On the other hand, that requires an intercreditor agreement with the, the first lender, and most first lenders are reluctant to do that. I'm, I'm not saying that they all are like that, but in my experience, you know, more times than, than not, the lender will not allow an EB-5 investment group to take a mezzanine position and therefore EB-5 has usually come in as PREF equity. 
which means that it's structured like a loan because we call it equity, but it's not really an equity position. The investor doesn't really have any stake in the operation. The investor is basically getting a limited interest return on it, subordinated to capital that's in front of it. Uh, the capital that's in front of the investor could be, certainly is going to be a first mortgage. It could also be a mezzanine loan from another lender. It could be a mezzanine loan from a government source. Uh, and, and then it the only priority that the EB-5 investor gets is over any government grant capital or any government loans that, are, that can come in as a third position uh, and the equity of the equity investors. So it's a mixed bag. And I think that from the standpoint, I think where we want to try to get to is a situation where the investor can get good legal protection and to the extent that the investor is going to be at risk, maybe there's a way for the investor to get some upsides from the project. Primarily, as you all know, much better than I, uh, investors are willing to come in and not get much of a return on their capital, and they're focusing on their green card. And that should be continuing to be the primary issue. And I think that developers have to become a lot more astute about how to help that happen and, and uh, navigate the, uh, the difficulties of going through the whole green card process and the USCIS reviews. And I think that as a, without having a greater uh, transparency on that process and a greater flexibility on the part of government, I think that's going to be a real limitation in terms of attracting capital. So first and foremost, you want to try to structure rules, uh, rules uh, with whatever program, uh, whatever new life the EB-5 program is going to take, that's going to give primarily, primary attention to uh, achieving the primary goal of the investor, which is to get their green card and to get it as soon as possible. Secondly, however, there have been a number of defaults uh, in, with EB-5 projects, uh, simply because there are defaults in the real estate industry. And, and uh, particularly over the last year where the pandemic has put a lot of developers into sad shape, it's also had an impact on EB-5, which tends to be very low in the capital stack. And, uh, and very often when these projects are uh, taken over by the bank, the bank, there's no, cap, there's no uh, capital be, uh, behind them to protect the EB-5 investor. So they, get, they, they, they suffer both the loss of their investment and because they suffer the loss of their investment and the capital is no longer at risk, they lose their opportunity for the green card. So that problem has to be addressed. Uh, and uh, I think it has to be marketed, but basically we have to offer real substance to the investor. Well, one of my own personal predilections is to look to try to give the EB-5 investors either a better return. Uh, as you probably know, it's mostly the agents and regional centers that take the bulk of the return and the EB-5 investor gets a tiny little piece of it, uh, and or to give them an opportunity to convert their investment into some kind of equity investment once, uh, once they've uh, achieved their green card. So I don't know if that fully answers your question or just a part of it. So I'll, I'll kick it back to you. Well, Michael, I think um, um, it's important because, you know, a lot of our audience are, are, you know, potential investors that are looking for investment migration programs, not just in the United States, but all over the globe. And as you know, today there are over 40 different programs. I think it's really important for our investors to understand just 
how capital markets and financing of real estate projects work in the U.S. If you're, you know, investing in a project in, in India, you raise all the money and you go use cash to go build a, the development project. You know, it's like that in many countries. So, you know, our, our in, institutional lending platforms for, for real estate projects are a lot different. You know, you have a senior loan, mezzanine loan, sometimes even more subordinated than the mezzanine loan, and then you have equity. And I think it's very important for, you know, just to kind of at the basic level to explain to our investors how the different levels you know, what they mean from both the risk and return perspective. And, you know, just kind of explaining how, you know, the, the, the lower you are in the capital stack, the lower risk you have with the lower return. And maybe just kind of explaining all the way up to the capital stack. I think that would be helpful. Very good. Okay. So here's capital stack 101. Um, the, the starting point is the developer, what motivates all of these projects is the developer is looking to put together a project they either <clears throat> as a merchant developer to sell the units once it's completed or to maintain it long range and particularly those that are going to maintain it long range uh, they want to um, limit the amount of equity that they have in it so the starting dynamics are you have a project let's say it costs a hundred million dollars how do you raise a hundred million dollars the first the essential part of that capital stack is going to be a mortgage loan. In U.S. projects, uh, there's not a project that I know of, or there, I'm sure there's some that exist, but there's very few projects that are done with equity capital. Most of them have a mortgage loan. And that mortgage loan, what the lender or the provider of capital of that loan uh, wants is a, a security of a first position, call it a lien. So they have a lien on the property and they have the first position so that if their loan is not paid, they have the right to foreclose on the property, wipe out anybody behind them <clears throat> and take over the project and put it through a process called foreclosure. And at the end of that process, they then sell the project on the market. Uh, they, and if they can't sell the project, they uh, bid in on the mortgage themselves and then they hold it and then they can either uh, try to redo the project themselves or they can sell it the project on the market. So in a typical, in the current environment, you have two types of mortgage loans. One is a construction loan and the other is a permanent loan. And the idea is that you need this capital. No, there are different types of lenders that provide capital for construction and provide capital for uh, permanent loans. Uh, usually it's institutional lenders that will provide the construction loan and uh, they will generally look to limit that loan to maybe 60 to 65 percent of loan to value of the capital stack. So if you have a hundred million dollar project, you're likely to tap out at 65 percent. Maybe in a few instances you can keep, you know, push that up to 70 percent. So the developer at that point says, fine, I've got a good loan. Uh, Usually those loans are made at, uh, at, at a, a prime uh, or LIBOR plus, uh, you know, X percent above that. And so it, it, in today's environment, it's usually a floating rate, but with some kind of base to it. And generally speaking, in, right now in today's environment, I think you'd probably come out with about 6% interest only, uh, you know, for a typical construction loan in the first position. So let's say a, 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 um, 
let's call Vanke as, a, as an example of a bank that provides construction loans, or do Ozark uh, used to provide be, be the big construction lender. Let's say that they provide $65 million of this $100 million project. The developer doesn't want to put up $35 million or 35% of the project because equity is always the most expensive part of the project. So the developer is going to do two or three things. Ideally, the developer will go to government and say, I've got a great project. Uh, I want you to give me some assistance so I can reduce the, I can both induce the lender to come in and show the lender that there's good capital behind it and that the government is supporting this project, which, which doesn't have any real substance to it, but it gives a nice brand to it to have a little bit of government capital in. Most governments don't give capital. Most governments will give uh, what they call offsets. Like New York City, for example, might give a real estate tax abatement. And what the real estate tax abatement does, it, re it increases your net operating income because it reduces your cost. And ultimately, the amount of mortgage is based upon the net operating income. So you take a level, of it, usually the construction loans have two requirements. One is they'll rarely exceed 65% of cost. And secondly, they will also look to the future. If they're stuck with the project, they'll rarely exceed 65% of the appraised value of the property when it's completed. So you get to the appraised value of the property by first getting your net operating income and then dividing that by a, uh, a cap factor. And then that's the, that sets the maximum amount of mortgage. So what that really means, and this, this first occurred in the Commodore Hotel deal, the main reason the city uh, gave a real estate tax abatement to the Trump Organization was not because they loved the Trump Organization, although we liked them uh, at that time because they were making investments when nobody else was making investments in the city, but to induce the lender to increase its loan from $40 million to $70 million. And because real estate taxes take a priority even over the uh, mortgage, in other words, when the priorities of the project, you first have to pay your taxes. And if you don't pay the taxes, the city will come in and foreclose and take the property. And then they'll put it up at tax foreclosure sale. The second priority, which we always call the first lien, but it's really second to taxes, is the mortgage itself. So when the lender is making a loan, the lender is going to look very carefully at the amount of real estate taxes in front of it. And that the amount of taxes also determines how much of a net operating income you will have. So to the extent you can reduce real estate taxes, you are increasing your net operating income and therefore you're enabling uh, the bank to make a larger loan, even considering the bank's normally rigorous criteria. And as I say, that was the technique that New York used to induce the Commodore. And for many years, that was the technique that it used on a number of other projects. But there's also other ways of stimulating uh, where the government can come in and help. Uh, they can give electrical benefits, which reduce the operating cost. Uh, they can give mortgage recording tax benefits or, sale, or sales tax exemptions. So when you uh, do a project, every state charges and, and locality charges sales taxes on the, uh, on the materials. Generally speaking, those materials are about Four per, the, the, the taxes on the materials come out to be around 4% of, of the total hard cost of the project. 
So if you're building a $100 million project, then maybe $60 million of that is in uh, hard cost. And so 4% of the 60% is about $2.5 million, $2.4 million. I'm just running some numbers that may be, may be inaccurate. But the concept is that if you get a sales tax abatement in the project that I've just described, you're basically saving $2.5 million of capital. And that $2.5 million of capital means that you have less equity to put in. So you can basically take that off of your equity. Some places like New York City have a very high mortgage recording tax, close to 3%. So if you're in the situation I'm describing here where you have $65 million mortgage, normally it would be 3% uh, that you'd have to pay in mortgage recording taxes. Basically comes up to somewhat similar, a little bit over $2 million, maybe about two and a quarter million dollars. And if you save that, so that's also a savings off your equity. So uh, New York City generally is using mortgage recording taxes and sales tax abatements as the primary tool. It doesn't give you capital, but it reduces your cost. And in the, the example we just used of a $100 million project, if you use the two of those uh, together, it has the net effect of saving you close to $5 million of your $100 million project. And if you have $35 million of equity and you're saving $5 million, you're basically saving about 14% of your equity just from those two techniques. <clears throat> Ideally, though, what the developer looks for is capital and, and capital to replace its own equity. And it can get capital. Ideally, it would get that capital in the form of a low interest loan from a, a government. They're usually states are a little bit more prominent in terms of providing capital rather than localities. Very few localities provide actual capital, either in the form of loans or grants. Uh, the, uh, that, uh, I'm trying to think of some examples of it. Uh, we, we, the, the city of Philadelphia, or actually the state of Pennsylvania, has a grant program called RACP. And you used to be able to get very large components of RACP. On my North Station District project, uh, when uh, Ed Rendell was the governor, we were able to get a commitment of $20 million of RACP uh, for our overall project. And then we draw it down for each individual project that we would do. But that can provide interesting levels of capital. So for example, on a first project that we were about to do, which was a, a $60 million residence for uh, Temple Medical students, we got a RACP of $4 million. So that meant that about 8% of our capital was provided by the state in the form of a grant, and that reduced the amount of equity that we had to provide by $4 million. So to the extent that you can get those grant programs, I, that's terrific. If you can't get a grant, there's many uh, uh, cities that do provide loans, again, using Philadelphia. There's the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation, PIDC. They have a number of uh, loan programs, low interest loans. You usually get in loans for the rate of maybe 5%, uh, which, and they usually take a MES position, uh, which means that they're behind the first mortgage. So let's use the example of um, the $100 million project that I just laid out. So like you, you're starting off with $65 million of uh, loan capital from the first mortgage. You then would have maybe a PIDC that would come in for 
uh, let's say this project was in Philadelphia, so I'll use the Philadelphia programs. You'd have a, a PIDC might come in for $5 million, so that takes you up to 70% of your capital stack. And then you might get a RACP grant. Let's say you get a RACP grant of $5 million, that takes you up to 75% of your capital stack. So just from those two programs, you've reduced the developer's equity from $35 million or 35% to 25%. That's the whole game to play here, to keep reducing that equity. But let's say you've exhausted all of those techniques because increasingly states and cities are under fiscal pressure. In the two examples I used, uh, RACP, RACP uh, it was reduced, I think it used to be $500 million a year statewide. It's now about $100 million a year. So it's much harder to get and the grants are much smaller. And this is where EB-5 comes in. So with EB-5, there are really no limits, no legal limits on how much you can put in to the project. Generally, the investors will want the, uh, as a rule of thumb, will want the developer to have in at least as much capital as they are putting in. So if you're raising $10 million of EB-5, the investor would like to see that the developer has at least $10 million behind them because they're looking to protect their own position. So EB-5 is great because it really has the same impact as a mezzanine loan, as a PIDC loan. It's an investment and you're paying an interest rate on it, but it's generally a much lower interest rate than you would have to pay in the private market. So for example, uh, a, because of the issue that uh, most lenders don't like to do an intercreditor agreement with EB-5 investors because they don't really know who they're dealing with. They don't know uh, if the regional center is going to be capable of coming in and running the, the project. So they generally don't want the, real, the EB-5 capital to have the ability to come in and take over the project. Uh, the, they give them, they will recognize a, a PREF equity position, but they're not giving any legal status to that PREF equity position. And what that means is that the PREF equity position usually comes behind the first more, it always comes behind the first mortgage and it, usually, and it almost always comes behind any mezzanine capital that would come in. Every once in a while you get a government program that's willing to subordinate to an EB-5. So for example, PIDC is willing to take a third position. So PIDC in many instances will go in behind EB-5. PIDC is very interesting because it also is a partner in the Welcome Fund which is one of the more successful regional centers uh, in, the, uh, in the country. And they're very familiar with that program, so they've been able to integrate a lot of their capital with EB-5 capital. So take, going back to the example that we had here, we're now up to a $75 million uh, capital stack with the first mortgage being $65 million, a, the, uh, the second mortgage being PIDC being $5 million, and then a five million RACP grant. The ideal, the, what the, the nice part about the RACP grant though is that even if an EB-5 investor has to come in behind the MES position, behind PIDC, who was ever in the MES position, they are in front of both the equity project, the equity component, as well as the grant capital. So grant capital is great because it, it, it's terrific for everybody in that process, particularly the EB-5 investor. And that's why many EB-5 investors will look most favorably upon government programs 
both because it seems to them, particularly the Chinese who have a very much more favorable attitude towards government, uh, it seems to them that the government is giving its stamp of approval, but most important, it's putting in capital that is behind the EB-5 investors. So it gives the EB-5 investors some greater protection. Uh, to give one comparison, though, if one went out to, if the developer could not find any of this capital, and it had to go out and raise mezzanine capital, meaning the 65% that it's getting from the first lender is not sufficient, it doesn't have the capital itself to provide the 35%, there are many institutions and many uh, lending uh, uh, entities that will provide mezzanine capital, but it's at a very high rate. And in today's environment, I think you'd pay at least 14% and probably closer to 18% interest rate and maybe even a kicker on top of that for mezzanine capital. So for that reason, every developer, and including the EB-5 investors, because the EB-5 investors would be subordinated to that mezzanine capital, they want to be sure that the mezzanine capital, any capital in front of them is as low rate as possible, so they're in a better protected position. So the last part of the capital stack, nobody really wants to use mezzanine lenders because they're too expensive. But on the other hand, if a developer has no other source of capital, he's going to go to the mezzanine investors. And that's where EB-5 becomes critically important. So we've now gotten to the point where we have $75 million of capital together in the illustration that I've just used. And the developer would like to get his capital down to, say, 12.5% or $12.5 million. So we're $12.5 million short, that's where EB-5 could come in. So EB-5 theoretically can come in at any point of the capital stack. If, for example, there were no PIDC loan or there were no grant, the EB-5 capital would come in immediately behind the $65 million, and to get the developer down to 12.5%, which is really the driving force there, you, the, the EB-5 capital would have to pick up the difference between 65% and the uh, and the 12 and the uh, I guess 87 and a half percent, which is what the capital stack would be after the developer's equity. So and so, if you follow a general rule, which is not always the 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 rule that's applicable, and say, okay, we've got 25 million dollars left to finish the capital stack, let's split that in half because the EB5 investor wants to have in. Uh, the once the, the the developer have in at least as much capital as it does, so in that case the developer would put up twelve and a half million and the EB five would put up twelve and a half million. The developer is very happy because the developer has a very small portion of equity in uh, in the project. Um, it also has a five million dollar grant which it's not paying anything for, and that grant is subordinated. It it it, it has no position. It's simply a, a gift. The EB-5 investor is happy because while there is uh, there's a loan and a MES loan in front of it, the grant is behind it. So the EB-5, $12.5 million, is behind $70 million of capital, which is the $65 million of the first mortgage and $5 million of the PIDC. But the $5 million grant from uh, RACP is behind the EB-5. So that's sort of one very rough illustration of how the capital stack can come together. What are the dangers in it? Uh, well, first of all, uh, if the project goes sour, then either the MES lender can come in 
and foreclosed on everybody behind it, which means the EB-5 investor is out of pocket, gets, gets wiped out as well as the developer, or the MES lender can, uh, can, the MES lender can foreclose anyway, but the MES lender can keep the project going by paying the first mortgage. So as long as the MES lender is keeping the project alive and is keeping the first loan alive, that project continues and the MES lender really steps into the place of the developer and finishes up the project. If the MES lender doesn't do that, then the first lender forecloses and everybody is wiped out. And in that wiping out process, the EB-5 investors have no status. In other words, the, 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 uh, the only uh, recourse that they have is if the, either the MES lender or the first lender forecloses and they put it up for sale, if the sale proceeds exceed the loan and the, and the first lender gets paid off, then that loan is dispersed out, you know, according to the next people in the capital stack. So what that really means is that the EB-5 investor is taking the same risk as the developer, although it's ahead of the developer in the process, but quite frankly, the developers are pretty slick and they're smarter than many of the investment groups. And they, they, most developers figure out a way that they can somehow squeeze ahead of the EB-5, uh, maybe by redeploying the money that's what this, I think what we're getting at is in talking about the capital stack, getting into some of the dynamics of the, uh, of the negotiations between the developer, the lenders, the sources of capital, and the EB-5 investors. And I think that in order to, you know, my position was always that I think the EB-5 investors really need some real estate expertise in terms of putting their deals together. Some regional centers have that. Uh, most don't really have it. Most really, most under, a lot of the regional centers come out of the financial services industries, uh, but most of them come out of the immigration field. And I think what's really missing in this process to protect the investor and maybe even get a better piece for the regional centers is for those regional centers to act as if they are developers and at least be able to get in the game and, and do the negotiation that the developer would have. I, I don't know if I covered everything, but... Uh, no, you've, you've covered a lot, and, and, and it's very helpful, and I think our audience are really going to appreciate, you know, the in-depth, uh, you know, dive into capital stacks and how the dynamics work. Obviously, there's, you know, a lot of much more complicated capital stacks, and then there are much easier capital stacks where there's a senior construction loan, a mezzanine EV-5 loan, and equity. But, you know, I've, I've done transactions where, you know, there was a senior loan, there was, there was mezzanine EV-5 loan. Actually, I did a transaction where EV-5 was senior loan, and then there was historical tax credits, and then there was investors on historical taxes, both federal and state, and then there was TIP financing from the city. So there was like eight different financing sources, and those type of transactions get complicated. But I think it's great for us to, to explain to the audience just kind of the simple transaction, the typical EB-5 transaction, you know, up and down the capital stack, how that works. One of the things you, you mentioned, I think, um, you know, I've, I have a lot of experience kind of negotiating with the senior lenders, and you're right, I think a lot of senior lenders don't like having to deal with 200 families, for example, and they don't want to have uh, EB-5 group as a, you know, as a, a mezzanine loan because they don't want, you know, 200 families to foreclose on the project without development experience. But they are lenient. I think if, if, if the regional center is a group that does have either financial experience or development experience, I think they are likely to allow EB-5 to be in a mezzanine position. So I think in the early days, there were definitely a lot of EB-5 that was 
structured in the in the preferred equity position, but in the last you know five or six years, most of the EB five projects have been structured in the mezzanine uh, position as more senior lenders have you know become uh, more cognizant that you know some of the regional centers are sophisticated to have development expertise and they do have the ability to foreclose and take over the project and finish it in the, in the event of a default. Um, the, the other thing that you mentioned, I think it was, it was really interesting, you know, in 1975, I guess, when you, uh, you know, worked from the economic development side on the, on the Commodore Hotel, there was no EB-5. But I think it's interesting you, you, um, that uh, former President Trump actually didn't have all the finance in mind up, and you helped him kind of come up with that. You want to spend a couple of minutes maybe talking about how, you know, what, what he had, what he didn't have, and how you, you were able to think outside the box and, and, and come up with the, with the additional finance to get that project done. Right. Well, what's interesting about that, oh, and, and by the way, uh, just one comment to, to finalize uh, or to add to what you just said about the lender's position. Most lenders don't want to foreclose. The last thing in the world that a bank wants to do is get in the real estate business. And first of all, that means their capital is going to be tied up and be unproductive while they're going through an elaborate foreclosure proceeding and even a simple one, and certainly where there's going to be challenges, you know, where the developers are putting up all kinds of defenses. The last thing in the world a lender wants to do is run a real estate project, and uh, and even they don't want to go through a foreclosure proceeding if they can avoid it. So I think the process could be helped considerably <clears throat> if the lenders, if there was an integration between good development capacity and regional centers or whoever is packaging the loan, which really means either the regional centers themselves have to be uh, capable of handling that real estate and convincing the lenders that they can step into the project and run it and, and keep it out of foreclosure, or what might be a more likely situation is joint ventures between a, real, between a regional center and a real estate company. So for example, Abtin, you know, we're working very closely with Silverstein Properties they have a development management company that most banks would recognize as having great expertise, and they also know something about EB-5. So if they were to, to connect with, uh, on a consulting basis, with a regional center, I think that would be a much more attractive proposition uh, to the banks in, in terms of recognizing the EB-5 position. So just a, you know, just that comment. And, I have a, just a quick follow-up on that, and I think Priya has some, some more questions. But, um, you know, you mentioned an interesting point that, you know, a lot of times the developers are pretty slick. I think in the cases of some of the developers where they're the EB-5 regional center, essentially they're the borrower and the lender. So it's, it's tough, you know, because there's definitely a conflict of interest. You know, if it's, a, if it's a big, reputable developer, I think a lot of investors trust them in, in that regard. But, you know, I think that, that actually outlines an important point that, you know, that the, 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 the group you're dealing with uh, as a regional center is not also the lender and the borrower where, you know, a lot of developers have a regional center arm where they're raising money for their own projects. But there are also groups that are raising money for third party projects. And, you know, they, they keep the developer honest to make sure that, you know, the transaction is, is you know, uh, 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 I guess, um, you know, they're, 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 you know, there's an arm's length transaction and they're heavily, um, um, you know, Maybe you want to you want to talk about you know the the difference between uh, developers that are also regional centers and then third party developers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I guess I should go back to your question about the, the what Trump was looking for and in in that process and how that capital stack put together. 
I think at that time there was far less sophistication about uh, all kinds of mezzanine financing and uh, and grants. The city up until that point had not given any incentives whatsoever to commercial development. Uh, their programs had been up until 76 social programs or industrial programs because the city, uh, New York, like many other cities at that time, were losing industry. So there were no programs whatsoever to, in, you know, to induce developers to do a commercial project like a hotel. Uh, therefore, what we came up with was the, the mechanism that was most directly related to putting the capital stack together, which was a real estate tax abatement. Because what the bank was concerned about is more, and, and this was really related in part to the timing of when that project was done, because the bank, I think the taxes were $3 million, or would have been, full taxes would have been $3 million a year. So uh, that really relates to maybe, uh, depending on a five cap, that might relate to about $60 million worth of value. So basically, the, if you convert that into an NOI impact, so basically the bank was saying, well, that's a big impact to be behind. And because of that, and I, th I think the project costs were only in the range of $80 million, $85 million, uh, the, the ultimate loan, the $70 million, went well beyond what today's standards were of 65% loan to cost. I think the bank's loan covered really the whole bulk of the project, <clears throat> particularly since uh, Trump was able to get the land at a very cheap cost and contribute the land probably. He overvalued the equity of it uh, in, in terms of getting an appraised value on that equity because he was dealing with uh, the bankrupt institution, that, uh, Penn, uh, Penn Central. And uh, so we were really focused on how to induce the bank to come in to provide that capital stack. <clears throat> and, and the quickest and easiest way was to give not only an abatement of the taxes, but a fixed rate. Because what the bank was really concerned about is if the city went bankrupt, which was a real possibility then, the trustees could raise the real estate taxes through the roof. Uh, be, the, the trustees would take over on behalf of the bondholders and they would raise real estate taxes across the city to make sure that the bondholders got paid. So the bank was really was giving a very, very low loan-to-cost loan, primarily because they were concerned about the volatility of the real estate rates. So we really structured this not only to give an abatement, which an abatement could be a certain percentage of the taxes. Like in Philadelphia, they give a 10-year abatement and they're going to uh, skew that now. They're going to make it uh, a 10-year abatement, but it's a sliding scale where it reduces 10% per year. But if the tax base goes up, that abatement is worthless because they're not giving you a fixed rate. They're really telling you, well, we're going to charge you 10% each year of what the taxes would have been, but the full taxes could skyrocket if, there's, if the city of Philadelphia gets into fiscal trouble. So the critical issue of that program was we gave a fixed amount, not a, uh, not a, a, uh, a portion of the taxes. Uh, that, and, and one of the big issues that I had when I was trying to sell this, because part of this, the first difficulty was making a deal with Donald Trump, which took a, a while, but that was fun. And uh, that was it. And he, he came away saying he got the best deal, and we think we got the best deal. Uh, history will tell. 
Uh, but the biggest part of it was selling the deal to the political figures that had to approve it, as well as to stakeholders, because every other developer in the city was saying, hey, why are you giving it to that guy? Is it because, you know, he comes from the Brooklyn uh, administration and, and he's, uh, the, the city is giving him a favorable deal? And I said, this is easy. I'll give you the same deal. You, you invest in the city and we'll give you the same exact deal that we gave Trump. Nobody took that deal because nobody was willing to make the investment. Uh, this, but during that process, people were saying, well, you know, you're, 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 you're being taken advantage of. And, uh, and of course, they had a saying like some of the old time Jewish developers would say, Boychik, you know, he's taking your pants. And uh, I would say, uh, and he says, Trump doesn't have any money in this. He's, he's going to cash out on this deal. He doesn't have any investment in this. He's, he's probably got a, a contract with Penn Central that has no money down. And if he gets the deal, he'll go forward, but he's got nothing at risk. I say, that tells me he's a smart developer, you know, and I, I'm not disturbed by that. What I want is somebody who's going to invest some money in the city. I'm, the city's going to do everything possible to help them because we really were in a crisis situation. And if he's good enough to get this without any money, even if he gets it all from the bank, we don't care. We only care about two things. Number one, we want to save the jobs of the Commodore uh, that was shut down, which was 1,400 jobs. Number two, we want to see new investment, particularly at that time, that Grand Central area was starting to go like Times Square, where there were pornography uses coming in. Uh, the Chrysler building had just gone into foreclosure. That was the environment. So we want to see that. And third, what we really want from them, which was the biggest part of my negotiation, was we want to put it in a, uh, a, uh, uh, a hotel that will be, attract convention business. So the big, we sort of forced him into doing a deal with Hyatt, which he didn't want to do, and it turned out to be a diff difficult partnership all along, because what we really wanted was a hotel in there that would create a reservation service that would bring convention business to the city. And that accomplished it all. So I think, in retrospect, I don't really know the numbers. I don't know whether the $70 million loan covered most, if not all, of the capital stack. I imagine Trump had some equity capital in there, and I'm sure he probably bought in some third-party sources to provide the equity. But at that time, there was no mechanism other than the, the uh, pilot to provide any capital substitutes. We didn't have any loan programs. At that time, uh, we, we did have the uh, sales tax abatement and the mortgage recording tax abatement that was part and parcel along with the, the pilot mechanism, the payment in lieu of taxes. But I don't remember, I don't think we gave the sales tax or mortgage recording tax abatement to them. I'd, I'd have to go back to my records and check. Nowadays, it's a, it's a much more complicated deal both because there are very few cities that like to give tax abatements. When you give a tax abatement, the city covers all of the, the, that money uh, and all of the risk. And the arguments we usually make with cities is that, well, this project wouldn't be built if you don't give the tax abatement. So you're, now you're getting zero taxes. It's better for you to get some taxes. Uh, but the cities are saying, okay, but we have to pay 100% of those taxes. Uh, the, the, with other components, particularly like sales tax abatements, you're sharing that with the state or you're sharing that with the county, with other jurisdictions, so that's easier to get. Uh, there, there was a period of time when cities and states had capital to add to the capital stack. 
that's still there. It wasn't there in 76, but it's still there, but to a much lesser degree. The, the, the comment about, um, you know, dealing with regional centers that are arms like transactions or regional centers that are owned by developers. Uh, I'm sorry, Tim, could you repeat that? Yeah, sorry, the, the, the last question and uh, that line of questioning was, um, you know, the, the difference between dealing with a regional center that is not part of a development group and versus dealing with a you know development group that has their own regional centers that may have a conflict of interest in AB5 transactions. Oh, okay. I, so, for example, uh, uh, I, I guess there's certain large New York developers that basically control their own regional centers. Uh, I, I think from a public policy standpoint, that's less desirable. Uh, I, I think because those entities, and I, I really think what happened, and one of the reasons why New York City got a disproportionate amount of capital is because you had a number of very large, very competent and well-connected developers that had projects and they were able to set up their own marketing organizations. And if a Chinese investor has a chance between going into, let's say, Hudson Yards, which is a terrific project and a very high-profile project, in a great area, but still got a TEA designation, or going into the South Bronx, you know which project they're going to pick. So I think from a public policy standpoint, um, I, I'm less against have a developer having its own regional center. Um, my real objective would be to see EB-5 capital used in impacted areas and to really make a transformation. From that standpoint, if a developer is willing and able to do that, um, you know, let him take every advantage there is, including setting up his own regional center. Probably on a deeper level, there is a conflict of interest, but I'm not sure I fully understand that conflict. And in any case, I tend to look at what the results are rather than the, uh, the more moral issue of whether there's a conflict here. But that's just my personal view. I think one of the one of the more interesting topics, which is more common these days in EV5, is redeployment, and that conflict of interest that might exist between a developer who, say, wants to refinance a project, um, but needs to redeploy EV5 funds to keep those funds at risk if the immigration process is not complete yet. Can you talk a little bit more about that conflict of interest specifically? Well, that's a particularly difficult one. I, I agree with you, and I'm still a little confused by how the, how the whole redeployment uh, functions, but I do know that one of the major regional centers that controls, you know, tremendous amounts of capital is really looking at that as a financial play. You know, they borrowed the money very cheaply, and they're looking to redeploy it at a, a very substantial increase in pricing and the interest rate. So let's say, for example, that they got the EB-5 capital for 4 or 5%, just to pick a number. And now if they're redeploying it, they want the, the entity that's taking that redeployment to pay them 8 or 9% interest. So they're taking a spread. It's a very good business model, but I don't think it's in tune with the public policy. For uh, I don't think it, 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 it helps in any way the uh, investors. The investors aren't getting any piece of that. And so what it does, it simply puts the investor into a different project than they originally, uh, you know, counted on. They, they contemplated certain levels of risk. Uh, the, the, their problem is caused by the fact that the USCIS has not 
process the applications fast enough. So in most cases, they're in a retrogression issue and they're stuck. They're not getting their, their green card in five years. Their capital has to remain at risk. So because of the government caused program, a problem, they are now at the mercy of the developers. On the one hand, the developers in most cases are required to keep the capital at risk and, and they can't use it themselves. So they're just going to look to, you know, get out of the, that obligation as easily as possible and maybe even make a profit out of it. And I'm sure what occurs, every situation is going to be a little bit different. I'm not sure I could make any broad sweeping judgments about, you know, redeployment generally. You'd have to look at each particular situation. Uh, but I know I've been trying to find redeployment capital for a couple of projects where we were short of VB5. And it's really, it's really hard to find that. I think there's a gap in the market between what the providers of redeployment capital are looking for, what buyers of redeployment capital would be willing to pay for it, and perhaps most important, how do you take care of the investor and protect the investor? Are you improving the investor's position or are you de decreasing the investor's position? Yeah, I think on the redeployment side, the fact that it's, it's already hard to find the re redeployment capital uh, another thing I think that ma made it even tougher, I think in, in October 2020, the USCIS actually stepped back from the previous rule, which was you could redeploy anywhere and you didn't have to create new jobs because the original project created jobs. They actually added a new requirement that now said, you know, you, you can only redeploy in the re original region where the original project is. So that makes it a lot harder to match between the projects that need to redeploying and the new projects because that really dynamic, you know, tremendously reduces the amount of projects that are available for redeployment. And I think, you know, that that's actually, uh, you know, it's not consistent with the pre, you know, what the previous understanding was. So many developers and regional center operators, you know, operated their businesses on the assumption that they could redeploy it to a certain project and then the rule overnight changed and made them much more restrictive. So that's something uh, I think that the USCIS still needs to address and there's definitely a lot of questions in that regard. You know, you're stimulating a thought here, which I, I never considered before, but I think the real solution to this is for the government to remove the rule that the capital has to remain at risk until the green card is issued. You know, when an investor came in, the real bargain was, hey, I'll tie up my capital for X years, I'll get a very low return on it, and then I'll get my capital paid back. So the risk that they're taking is during that period, let's call it five years, during that period, their capital is at risk, the project may or may go into default. That's a legitimate economic uh, risk. But now their capital is being tied up for 10 years and maybe more. And, and then they become subject to a redeployment that might put them into a riskier situation. The only real solution to that, which will eliminate the profit taking as well as being fair to the investor, and I think will ultimately stimulate a better market, is to remove that requirement of keeping the capital at risk for the uh, until the green card is issued. The capital should be at risk until the project reaches a certain level of stability and or a, uh, you know, a certain amount of time, let's say a, a fixed time, like five years. I don't know if the, when they're considering the new bill, if they're considering that, but that's probably the best way to solve the redeployment issue. And certainly I think it's the best signal to send to investors that the government's going to look out for their interest. I was just going to say, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, when they first, there needs to be some evolution there because obviously when they first started the program, the processing times were not 
so long at all. And it's actually the processing times that have dragged out the immigration process to beyond five years at this point is why we're having to see all this redeployment happening. So I do think there's some evolution that needs to happen there in terms of maybe changing that rule to match the current timelines of the immigration process. Sure. And, you know, and, and Michael, to, to your point also, I think I, I agree with you. I think there, there definitely needs to be more protections for the investors. And, you know, there just really aren't. The USCIS is, is, is not really equipped as an investor protection organization. You know, they're, they're an immigration organization, part of the Department of Homeland Security. And the SEC, you know, they, they, they try to do their, their part. But really, we need, we need some changes on the legislative front. This latest bill that unfortunately you know didn't get didn't get approved in, in the Senate and the House, uh, you know had some integrity measures and you know two two of the most important ones that I think are important. Uh, one is the you know requiring um, you know re regional centers and projects to have fund administrators instead of traditional traditional escrows or not even have any kind of escrow mechanism where the money is just given to a developer and they can do whatever they want with it. Those are some of the cleanup measures that was in that last bill, which required to have fund administrators and now investors funds are tracked and you know they're they're handled by a third party and then the other really really important part and as you know many uh, construction lenders have this is the ability to have construction draws and that would really eliminate a lot of the fraud in the old days and and, and that that's still the law of the land you know a developer or, or a regional center could raise 100 million hand that 100 million over to the developer and we've seen some instances where the developer may not have been the most trustworthy and or the regional center might not be the most trustworthy and they've taken that, those funds and bought you know yachts and you know private jets with it where if you have construction draws and that's how construction lenders operate uh, you know if, if you raise 100 million and they're building a 100 million dollar project you know they, they have to show you that hey i spent five million dollars on concrete you show the receipt and you get reimbursed or i spent you know 10 million dollars on steel and you show those receipts and you know they verify that and and those those draws are made as opposed to just handing cash over to you know some of these developers and you know by, by having those two integrity measures you really eliminate a lot of these instances of fraud and you really protect the investors but unfortunately some of those integrity measures that were in that bill you know the bill didn't pass and you know hopefully there, there, there will be some renewed negotiations both on the senate side and the house side to 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 bring those integrity measures but also our friends in new york that you know that opposed that bill they have a great point. Their point is, you know, if you want to clean up the EB-5 program, you got to reduce the, the, the wait times and the backlog and retrogression, and that would really solve the, the problem, the, you know, a lot of the problems. And, and they're correct, too. I think all of us in the EB-5 industry want this industry to be improved, to be the best for, for the investors, and also to be, you know, much easier for developers to be able to utilize this and to bring those foreign investment dollars, which before it used to be only one or two games in town, Today, there are 40 different countries that are competing with us, and many of them, you know, you get a residency that's not really worth anything. I think to have a U.S. passport where, and, you know, have access to 200-plus, you know, unique uh, elite universities in the United States where, you know, we're competing against, you know, somebody in Cyprus, you know, what university do they have in Cyprus or Malta? So I think, I think it's much, much better value to have a U.S. residency, and I think if we can you know, be the, the, the catalyst for change for Congress to, to, you know, enact some of those integrity measures to protect investors, it will make the program much, much more popular. Well, I think this is turning into a very interesting policy discussion because I think what we're saying here in different ways is that we got to go back to the basic principles. 
and, and I'm, as I'm looking at it, this program really was simulated to draw capital into ignored areas of the U.S., the Appalachia, you know, rural areas that were dying, inner cities. Very little of the capital is going there. Also, as a general principle, the first rule of any business should be protect your investors. Investors are sacred, you know, you look out for their interest. And the good developers who have remained in and have become household names are those that protect their investors, that they, they uh, you know, they don't take advantage of them. I think that this program was hijacked by both, if I can be a little difficult, uh, hijacked by the regional centers who are basically financial packagers and are taking, you know, we're able to see a good business opportunity in terms of packaging deals and getting in the middle and taking essentially a good broker's fee. But more, it was hijacked by the developers. The developers have changed the program that was meant to benefit, that, that was meant to provide opportunities for investors and bring talented people into the U.S., not just their initial investment, but also the contributions that what they would make if you if you believe in immigration, you're really getting the cream of the crop of the, of the immigrants through this program, but it was also meant to provide capital to places that weren't getting capital. It has not achieved either of those. And I think that uh, if, if we're able to get a new bill through, uh, going back to the principle of combining the EB-5 program with opportunity zones, and particularly there has to be some mechanism that's missing right now because opportunity zones are drawn pretty broadly and not every investment in an opportunity zone is a transformational investment. So how do you really provide advantages to the developer and the EB-5 investor and even the regional center to invest that capital in the places where it's really needed, where it's really going to make a difference? And in doing that, how do you provide better protections or returns for the investors? I think the market has to now consider not only giving them greater protections in terms of the capital stack and protect, uh, better protections against foreclosure by having a real capacity to do something if the developer goes sour, uh, but also maybe getting a greater return, you know, it, 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 for taking that level of risk. And particularly if you're going into opportunity zones where the risks are higher uh, and you want to offset those risks by getting supplementary capital in from the, the various governments, including the federal government, how do you also give a greater reward to those investors? Uh, they're, again, their primary goal is to get their green card, but the truth is if their capital is going to be tied up, they, you know, compared to a MES position of 15, 14, 15, 18% that returns that they're getting, the investors are getting a very small amount. They should get something more. Yeah, Michael, another thing I think that's important, I think, you know, as, as the EB-5 program first started in the early 1990s, majority of capital, I think something like 50, 60% of the capital was going to the state of California, many smaller developers. And also, you know, immigration attorneys that had kind of figured out the, this program were using, you know, utilizing EB-5 capital and they were building projects. But 10, 15 years, the majority of the money went to California, but it was kind of under the radar. And then, you know, after the, the great recession in 2007, as, you know, uh, real estate financing and, and you know just lending kind of completely dried down many developers started looking at alternative uh, sources of capital and they you know a lot of developers you know especially in New York City in the 2012 13 14 started looking at an you know, alternative capital and EB5 to raise in funds 
And I think what, what you know, and then, you know, it's got to start shifting. It's instead of 50, 60% of the money overall in the whole country going to California, they started going to New York, and not just New York State, but really New York City. And that really started kind of putting the EB-5 front and center. I think a lot of different senators in different states started paying attention to it. And that's where really the, you know, the, the disputes uh, arose that, you know, maybe one company, in, you know, one particular developer in New York was raising more money than most of the states, other states combined. I think that's what really uh, created a lot of the, uh, a lot of the challenges and, you know, a lot of the fights that have been going on in the industry. But, you know, at, at, the, at the core of it, you know, I look at ADB5 as, as, a, as a tool to, to provide financing to, to low-income, you know, communities. And, you know, the Opportunity Zone program is almost identical. And the only difference really between Opportunity Zones and, and EB-5 is, in one, you, you provide economic activity to low-income area, you get immigration benefits. The other one, you provide economic activity to low-income area, and you get uh, tax incentives. So essentially, you can, you can have these programs, you know, coincide and, and work together. And I think maybe you create an Opportunity Zone program where instead of getting tax benefits, you get immigration benefits. So there are definitely ways to tweak the program. But the, the core of it, I think, I think you mentioned it, are the investor protections that just haven't been enacted. And, you know, the SEC is, is too busy and it's more kind of a rear view focus. You know, they're, they're more, you know, focusing on frauds that happened four or five years ago as opposed to try to kind of, you know, uh, get developers and, and, and the industry to avoid, you know, future fraud. But I think through, through legislation and through integrity measures and through, you know, di different stakeholders and different organizations and Congress working together, we can, we can achieve those goals, clean up the program, but there's no other country that's as, you know, as, as unique and as wanted as the United States, particularly given the fact that most of the investors that are coming to the EB-5 program are looking to be business owners and what better country to start a business than the United States. And then they're looking for their kids to attend, you know, secondary education and no country on earth has as many, you know, elite universities as the United States. So, you know, hopefully we can tweak some of those and, and have a, Great future for the EV5 industry, but over the next month we'll find out, uh, you know, some of those uh, some of those efforts in Congress. Well, I'm going to ask you a question now because you raise a very interesting point for both you and, and Priya. Do you think those integrity measures? It's always hard to get the government to protect investors on integrity measures. You know, the SEC does a good job for, but it's got a different mission. To what degree do you think an institution like IIUSA could could be a, a force in in upgrading the integrity measures because basically this is a business and to the extent your investors don't trust you you have no business you know so as the as the institution that is sort of front and center of this whole program for whether it's the regional centers or sources of capital or anybody that joins IAUSA to what degree can an institution like that be effective in creating a new marketplace you know, I think, uh, so there's various stakeholders, not just IIUSA. So IIUSA is, a, you know, the, the, the nonprofit trade group for, for EB-5 regional centers and stakeholders. There's also the Investment Coalition. They've done a wonderful job in, you know, trying to get the, you know, the, the investors and, you know, developers and regional centers' interests move forward. There's also the, the Rural Alliance. There's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There's the, the Realtors Lobby. There's, I think, you know, there's American Hotel Lodging Association, the Asian American American, you know, Hotel Lodging Association. There's definitely, definitely a lot of stakeholders, and there are a lot of groups from the various different parts, you know, doing their job to try to influence, 
you know, cleanup measures, and then also, you know, make it, you know, what, what I see, you know, Investment Coalition is doing is, is very important because they say, okay, well, you know, you, you're doing these integrity measures, but they don't fix the existing problems, which is the backlog and having additional visas and the long processing times. And, and they, they have a very valid point. I think where everyone in the industry wants the same things, but I think they just have different, uh, you know, different uh, uh, processes on how they think they can get that done. But at the end of the day, you know, IIUSA, IC, the Rural Alliance, a lot of these organizations, they have, you know, they have a certain amount of influence and they have, you know, educational, um, uh, you know, responsibilities to, to kind of explain to the industry, you know, what, what these integrity measures mean. But at the end of the day, I think you have to have the will from Congress, from, especially on the Senate side, to want to, you know, to improve the program and move forward. And unfortunately, you know, from, from, a, from the, you know, nonprofit trade organizations, there's only so much you can do. At the end of the day, the, the you know the, the various influential senators will, will have to have the want to, to, to improve the program and increase its capacity. I think at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing. It would be great to have a program. I mean, especially from my point of view, sitting here in Dubai, I work with investors every single day, and and it's my job to sort of sell this program as a good program. So I think having a program that has those integrity measures that helps protect investors obviously is something that most people want and it would make for a better industry um do i think we have a little bit of ways to get there yes i do um but we'll see how that unfolds as you know as the negotiations continue and I think what happens over the next month is going to be really important. Obviously, Michael, you know about the lawsuit by the federal magistrate that essentially brought the price down to to the five hundred thousand and the rules back to the you know previous right. you know previous to November two thousand nineteen rules. But you know, at the end of the day, the the program is a sunset, so there is no regional center program as of today. Hopefully, there'll be a negotiation in Congress and they'll bring that back. But uh, the the direct program, which is doesn't have an expiration date, that program uh, is is valid today, and there's actually a lot of interest in it. Although you know we Priya and I had an episode last episode we talked about the challenges, you know how hard it is to get jobs counted through the direct program, and you know how, how you know it, it really has a fit for smaller projects, smaller franchise or restaurant projects. But there is definitely a new interest, and we're hoping that uh, you know Congress, uh, you know does the right thing and, and reenacts the program and brings the regional center program back. Thank you, Michael, for joining us and, and you know, sharing some of your insights. It's definitely been a pleasure having you on and we look forward to our continued discussion in the future. Well, thank you very much. It's been my honor and pleasure to join you, to meet Priya, to continue my relationship with you. And I think we there was a very interesting discussion here. I learned as much or more uh, and as I contributed, so I thank you for that. And I think we now have a great challenge uh, that could be a great opportunity, which is to take some of these insights and make sure that we move them in the right direction and bring these programs together and take them back to, you know, what the original policies were. So I look forward, hopefully, to working with you both in, towards that end. Thank you, Michael. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A, at stepglobalgroup.com or Abtin Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.